The leaves are changing, the weather is getting cooler, and yet the beat goes on for pro wrestling. Happy Thanksgiving to all my fellow Canadians. Enjoy that drumstick, the pillowy mounds of mashed potatoes, and as Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince would often drool over, those little tiny onions swimming in a sea of cream sauce. Now I just feel like seconds. I actually celebrated my Thanksgiving yesterday, but I know there may be a number of you who are celebrating today, or maybe both days. And depending when you're listening to this, you may have caught this episode before or after my annual Thanksgiving nature walk, which I highly recommend as well this time of year. It really gets your pistons pumping. Now then, I have a pretty big show coming at you with two reviews, so I don't want to waste too much time. Maybe this can be kind of like your Thanksgiving appetizer, or for those of you who have already had your dinner, maybe a second dessert to follow that pumpkin or apple pie, whichever you prefer. So here we go, and we're going to start with the AEW Dream Show that took place last weekend. AEW has really joined the pay-per-view train lately, and I wonder if they may do monthly shows next year. I miss the zero hour as I often do, but it didn't seem like there was anything too noteworthy, except for maybe Josh Barnett's AEW debut, which I don't know why that wasn't added to the main card. The show started off with a match for the ROH Tag Team titles. It was MJF defending both belts against the team of Dutch and Vincent the Righteous. It was promoted as a handicap match because of Adam Cole's injury, and there was a whole bunch of speculation as to who MJF would choose as his tag team partner, but the answer was no one. It was, in fact, a handicap match, and I guess all things considered, it didn't really make a difference because I don't think they could have possibly made Vincent and Dutch look worse here, and I'm not sure why this match particularly needed to be on pay-per-view. MJF started with Mike in hand and basically just addressed the rumor that he was the one who orchestrated the attack on Jay White, but he'd said that he had nothing to do with it and that someone stole his devil mask out of his bag and tried to set him up. MJF goes on to say that Adam Cole is not here tonight because he's hurt and that when he comes back, the ROH tag titles will be waiting for him. He then addresses his two opponents, calling Dutch Fat Boy, and says the first thing he's going to do is body slam Dutch, and then he's going to take the white boy with dreads, who the rest of us know as Vincent, and take him by his dirty hipster hair, tie it into a bow, and shove it up Dutch's fat ass. And this was basically the spot that the entire match built up to. The Reiches had some early offense with double team moves, but that was pretty much all they got. MJF did try the slam attempt early, but failed his first try. Dutch had the ref distracted so Vincent could use the chair, but MJF turned the tables by grabbing a hold of Vincent's manhood and playing Twister. He then finally slammed the big man and then positioned Dutch over the top turnbuckle and rammed Vincent's head right into him, as he said he would, which got a huge pop. MJF then signaled for and delivered the dreaded kangaroo kick before finally putting Dutch away with a heat seeker and used the ropes to get the pin to keep the titles. The audience was definitely into this, I can't deny that, I just don't think the match did the righteous any favors, and I'm not so much a fan of a babyface using dirty heel tactics and cutting heel promos. To me, it just further teases a swerve that MJF is not really a babyface and he's going to eventually turn back. But maybe I'm reading too much into that. So as per usual on AEW pay-per-views, we just go right from one match into the next, and I gotta say, I actually like that format, especially on a loaded card. Eddie Kingston put both of his titles, the ROH World title and New Japan Strong Openweight title, against the legend Katsuyori Shibata, whose pure title was not on the line for some reason, but perhaps the outcome of this match could create a case for Kingston to add more gold to his bag. 
These guys worked a typical strong style match. There was a spot that was very common in New Japan where they were just inviting the other to strike them and just kind of walking into and absorbing the offense. Shibata utilized a Cobra Twist at one point, which is a modified octopus stretch hold, but Kingston escaped and retaliated with a pair of spinning backfists, which he calls the Orican, and then a hit a final backfist, which knocked Shibata for a loop, and then finished him off with a powerbomb to keep his title in tow. They then embraced with a hug and handshake after the match as a mutual sign of respect, and perhaps the most noteworthy thing that happened on this show was that Kingston actually liked somebody. Julia Hart challenged Chris Statlander for the TBS women's title, and this is the part of the show where the announcers rotated, as Taz called the first two matches with Excalibur and Nigel McGuinness, while Tony Schiavone took over in this match, and Excalibur and Nigel stayed on for the rest of the show. Statlander showcased some of her strength in the early going against her much smaller opponent, who was accompanied by Brody King. As Brody distracted the ref, Julia attempted to spray Statlander with some mist, which seemed to be a very common tactic these days in all of pro wrestling. But Statlander saw it coming and nailed Julia with a solid right hand, basically knocking the mist right out of her mouth. The finish was a little awkward, as they kind of struggled for position a little bit, but basically Julia tried to spider around Statlander's body, I think attempting a submission, but Statlander was able to reposition Julia and hit a tombstone and followed up with a Sunday Night Fever to keep the title. This wasn't a bad match and probably Julia's best match to date in AEW. The four-way tag match was next for the future AEW World Tag Team title shot. It was the Young Bucks against the Lucha Brothers against the Gun Club, representing Bullet Club Gold, against the new team of Orange Cassidy and Hook. And as I've argued in recent weeks, I still struggle to understand how a team that has never tagged together is automatically inserted into a number one contenders match, but at least they didn't win, which I feared might happen. The Guns were actually really good in this match, and I think they may be a dark horse for Team of the Year. They've improved so much since joining Bullet Club Gold. There was one point in the match where they tried to pin each other, which is something that their father and Road Dog were famous for back in the day, but it didn't work. There was a great spot where Hook and Matt Jackson started trading Northern Light suplexes back and forth. Austin Gunn actually used the Road Dog shuffle at one point. Hook hit the red rum on Matt Jackson, I believe, but then Nick broke it up with a 450 splash. The finishing sequence was really good. Basically, Penta had the gun set up and delivered a combination of a package pile driver on one while delivering a gory bomb to the other, and then Matt came off the top with a drop kick for the assist. With Penta still kind of groggy, the Bucks took advantage with the BTE trigger to pick up the win. Honestly, I think this was kind of expected, and I have no problems with another Bucks versus FTR match. Although, as of collision this past week, that may not be the case, and the current match isn't nearly as satisfying. Swerve Strickland took on Hangman Page in the singles action up next, and this is when the pay-per-view for me really started to shift into full gear. This match was great, and I think did a good job of elevating Swerve to the next level. Although Hangman was technically the babyface leading into the match, the crowd was having none of that, and they let him know it. Adam Page nearly got booed right out of the building, and I'm not quite sure what exactly prompted that reaction, but I'm sure we all have our theories. These guys both unloaded some of their best offense. There was a powerbomb from the apron to the barricade from Swerve, followed by a double stomp off the top rope, and then Page responded with a dead eye on the ring steps, all within minutes of each other. Swerve countered the first attempt of the buckshot lariat, basically grabbing hold of Page's arm and then wrenching back on it from the floor with Page on his side, and then Swerve continued to work over the arm, and I thought Hangman did a really good job of selling it. 
Swerve delivered a 450 splash onto the injured arm, but then missed a stomp. Page then tried to come back with another buckshot, but couldn't follow through because of the injury, and the announcers actually noted that it was the buckshot arm that Swerve took out, which is a really good call. Prince Nana got involved and placed Swerve's foot on the bottom rope after Page finally hit the buckshot, but then Nana got ejected from the ringside. Page then placed the crown on Swerve and delivered another buckshot, but Swerve kicked out. Swerve came back and hit a pair of house calls and then the JML driver for the upset victory. I wonder if they flipped the script here because of the reaction that each of them received. NBA legend from the Seattle Supersonics, Sean Kemp, made a cameo at ringside. We then went into Wheeler Yuta versus Ricky Starks as John Moxley joined the commentary team for this match, and Moxley really seemed to be having a lot of fun here. This match was great as well. They started with some mat-based chain wrestling, but it quickly evolved into a brawl, and JR took over announcing duties from Tony as well at this point. Big Bill came down at one point, and Yuta knocked Starks off the ropes right into Bill. Starks came back with a spear and then the Rochambeau, and that was pretty much all she wrote. After the match, Yuta offered his hand to Starks, who once again walked away, just like he did with Danielson a few weeks ago. Speaking of whom, Brian Danielson took on Zack Sabre Jr. in singles action up next, in what I think can legitimately be called a dream match by modern wrestling standards, and I would say it exceeded expectations. I'm not sure if this is in the conversation for match of the year, but if not, it was damn close. I found it odd that the opponents in this match were wearing similar looking tights, not that that would be hard to tell them apart. This is another match that spent most of its early stages on the mat, as I think we all expected given the participants involved. Danielson locked in the Rito Romero special at one point, otherwise known as a Mexican surfboard. They exchanged very stiff uppercuts back and forth later on. There was a cool spot where Danielson positioned Sabre in a tree of woe and then unloaded with kicks to the knee which was tweaked earlier on. The first Busaiko knee attempt was caught and countered into a backland slide which Sabre calls the European clutch but only got two. Danielson then applied cattle mutilation and then released the hold to deliver a regal plex. He then delivered a Busaiko knee and Sabre's knee buckled before delivery of the move, so he kind of leaned forward and took the shot right to the face. Danielson then got back up and hit a second Busaiko knee to claim the victory. Let's just say Danielson won the battle because I don't think this war is over, at least I hope not. Can you say Wrestle Kingdom? The big six-man tag was next, featuring the Don Callis family of Konoski Takeshita, Sammy Guevara, and Will Ospreay against unlikely teammates Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega, and their neutral partner Kota Ibushi. This was a really good match as well. During Kenny's entrance, former UFC champion Demetrius Johnson was shown at ringside as he and Omega have been embroiled in some kind of video game rivalry. Guevara started for his team and was basically just taunting Jericho with every move he hit, but as soon as he Jericho got in there, Guevara tagged out, which I thought was great. Ibushi and Jericho actually did the former Le Sex Gods pose at one point. Ibushi took a German suplex from, I believe, Takeshita and landed right on its dome, which looked nasty. Guevara hit a code breaker on Jericho, but Jericho kicked out before the ref even counted one. Kenny tried a one-winged angel on Osprey, but Osprey flipped around and countered into a Hurricane Rana without one wasted motion. Osprey then hit a Sky Twister press to his standing opponents on the floor. Jericho countered Sammy's attempt of the GTH into a Walls of Jericho, but then as Osprey distracted the ref, Callus nailed Jericho with a bat, allowing Guevara to get the pin on his former mentor, as Osprey had both Omega and Abuji tied up on the apron. I'm not sure what happened to Takeshita at this point, but hopefully there was no injury.
I thought this was the right finish, and this match did a great job of advancing multiple programs and especially building to Callus eventually getting his comeuppance. FTR defended the AEW Tag Team titles in the co-main event against the younger team of Aussie Open. Davis and Dax unloaded on each other in the early going with chops. The Aussies scored with the Aussie arrow for a near fall. They then delivered FTR's own move, the Shatter Machine, and then Coriolis on cash, but Dax made the save. FTR responded with a spike pile driver on the ring apron on Davis, and then finished him off with a super Shatter Machine off the middle rope to keep the belts. I actually can't remember their first match, but this one was really good. And then it was the main event for the TNT title, which was two out of three falls between champion Christian Cage and challenger Darby Allen. I found it odd that this match was chosen to close the show, but by the end, it all became clear as to why the choice was made. Or should I say, on this day, I see clearly now. Darby won the first fall pretty early, countering a kill switch attempt. He basically jerseyed Christian and then pinned him with a jackknife cover. Christian hit Darby on the floor with a slam into the ring steps, and then slammed him again, this time from the apron. On this attempt, it looked like they missed the steps by a foot, and I swear he must have spiked Darby on his head and almost killed him. Look, I can understand this guy's passion for the business, but there's a line between passion and outright stupidity. Darby really needs to start taking better care of himself. So Christian takes the count-out victory in the second fall, and then as Darby is being loaded onto the stretcher, Christian attacks him with a frog splash off the top rope right on top of the stretcher. Christian then exposes the ring canvas and hits a kill switch on top of the wooden boards, but Darby kicks out. Darby comes back with a coffin drop and looked like he landed right on Christian's face, but he only got two. Christian tried the spear, but Darby avoided it, and then the ref takes the move. Christian then delivers a low blow and loads up to hit Darby with the belt, but then Nick Wayne runs out. He takes the belt from Christian and backs him off, only to turn around and hit Darby in the face, much to the disappointment of Wayne's mother who was sitting at ringside. This opens the door for Christian to pick up the final fall and keep the title. After the match, Christian holds up Darby for Wayne to take some cheap shots, but then Sting comes out. He drops both Christian and Nick Wayne until Luchasaurus attacks. They triple-team both Sting and Darby, and then Christian sets up to deliver the concerto on Sting, but then the lights go out and a mysterious video appears on the Tron, and we have the official debut of the one and only Rated-R superstar Adam Copeland. Copeland gets face-to-face -face with Christian and asks for the chair, which Christian willingly hands over, thinking Adam is on their side, but then Adam blasts both Wayne and Luchasaurus with the chair while Christian narrowly escapes. Copeland then spears Luchasaurus and stands tall with Sting and Darby to close the show. I think this debut might have elevated this show from a thumbs in the middle to thumbs up. It was very well done and we'll see where it goes from here. My only criticism is that his debut kind of overshadowed the whole, the whole Nick Wayne uh, heel turn. But I'll tell you where the WWE crew went from here and that's to Indianapolis for Fastlane which took place this past Saturday with about a third of the amount of matches that AEW had, and about half the airtime. I did miss the kickoff show, but there wasn't really anything particularly noteworthy, except for maybe one thing, which they highlighted on the main card anyway. We started off with a title defense. It was Judgment Day's Finn Balor and Damian Priest defending their unified tag team titles against the makeshift team of Cody Rhodes and main event Jey Uso, though this was clearly not the main event. You know, I made the argument earlier about Hook and Orange Cassidy jumping the line, so it's only fair to make that same argument here. I really don't understand how a team that has never tagged before would be granted an automatic title shot, but it is what it is. 
Actually, I almost forgot about the opening video. It was narrated by Pat McAfee, who is from Indianapolis, and the theme seemed to be about racing cars on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Back to the match, the babyface team had the early advantage working over Priest's knee, and Cole actually made a Bullet Club reference, stating that Cody and Balor were both leaders of the group at one time or another. I guess Vince must have missed this show. The heels took over and isolated Jay in their corner for the next little while. They built to the hot tag to Cody. He delivered a great-looking delayed vertical suplex to Balor off the middle rope, which I guess is technically a superplex. As the babyfaces regained the advantage, Dom and Rhea came running out, and Jay had a brief face-to-face -face with Rhea on the floor. Priest tried a top-rope Hurricane Rana, but landed pretty awkwardly on his knee. He did a tremendous job of selling here, and the bad knee became a theme of the match. Ripley got involved and nailed Jay with the Money in the Bank briefcase, but Jay kicked out. On the floor, as Priest and Cody were fighting for position on the announce table, J.D. McDonough came out and took a swing at Cody with the briefcase, but Cody dodged it and J.D. accidentally hit Priest in his already damaged knee. Cody then hit Priest with a crossroads on the announce table. Jay then took out Balor and J.D. with a tope con hilo to the floor. Back in the ring, Cody nailed the Cody cutter on Balor, and then Jay and Cody together delivered the 1D from the middle rope, and then the crossroads to finally put Judgment Day away and win the titles in a very surprising outcome. There was a weird backstage segment where Wade Barrett and Booker T are basically discussing what's happened on the show thus far and predictions of what's to come. They're interrupted by Xavier Woods, of all people, who asks if he can watch the rest of the show with them, and it basically turns into an ad for Pizza Hut, which was one of the sponsors. It was about as lame as you'd expect. The Street Profits and Bobby Lashley took on Rey Mysterio, Santos Escobar, and I guess a mystery partner in six-man tag team action. Oddly enough, the match started off as a handicap match, as the third man was absent in the early going, and no, it wasn't Hulk Hogan. Zelina got involved at one point and hit, I believe, Montez with a Meteora from the ring steps. Wait, the LWO were supposed to be babyfaces, right? Ray is then isolated for the next little while. He finally has a moment to tag out, but no one is in the corner because Santos was taken out earlier. Suddenly, familiar music hits and it's Carlito who comes running out. He cleans house and then Escobar gets back into the match with a dive to the floor. Carlito then nails Montez with a backstabber to pick up the win for his team. And I was struggling to understand how any of this was legal, since Carlito was never officially announced as part of the match. Suddenly, a Pizza Hut pizza is delivered to the announce desk as Xavier Woods again randomly shows up and says he's ordered a big dinner box for Graves and Cole. As I mentioned earlier, footage from the kickoff is shown as Jade Cargill arrives to the arena in style and is met by Triple H in the parking garage, and this was basically the last we ever saw of either of them. I don't know why they'd just bring her in to make this appearance, and she was in her ring gear too it looked like, but it wasn't used for anything physical, and didn't even make a live appearance, so that was kind of odd. The triple threat match was next for what is now called the WWE Women's title held by Io Sky. She defended against Charlotte Flair and Asuka. This was a really good match, and they did show a video from the kickoff of Io telling Bailey and Dakota to stay in the back so she can go it alone, which would kind of play into the finish. Charlotte immediately took Io down with a running boot, but then as the ref was checking on Io, Asuka blasted Charlotte with a face full of mist, which wasn't the only time that would happen at Fastlane. But this was probably my pick for match of the night, in terms of pure in-ring quality anyway. Charlotte came back with a forward cartwheel into a double clothesline, almost like a buckshot lariat. 
On the floor, Io hit an acai moonsault to Asuka, and then Charlotte went to the top to hit her own moonsault to both opponents and actually made contact this time. There was a unique Tower of Doom spot where Charlotte was going to deliver a Samoan drop to Io off the middle rope, but Asuka ended up powerbombing both to the canvas. At one point, Charlotte and Asuka had dual submissions on Io, Asuka with almost like a sharpshooter and Charlotte with a crossface, but then Bailey ran out for the distraction. Io waved Bailey away, and as Charlotte had Asuka in the figure eight, Bailey distracted the ref, I'm not sure what for, but it allowed Io to hit the over the moonsault on Charlotte to keep the belt. The finish was kind of weak, but it was a really good match. Footage from earlier is shown of LA Knight arriving to the building in his Slim Jim sports car, which he supposedly earned after winning the Battle Royal at SummerSlam, which I had honestly totally forgotten about. This led into the second tag match of the night, with LA Knight teaming with John Cena against the Bloodline team of Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa with Paul Heyman. The announcers made several references to Heyman now having gray hair, and speculating that it was all due to Roman Reigns' absence. Pat McAfee also came out to join the commentary team for this match and personally introduced John Cena. The LA Knight chants in this match were overwhelming, and I don't think there should be any debate that this guy is over. I just don't know if this is the best way to book him, but it seems to be working for the time being. Cena was isolated in the heel corner for what felt like an eternity, and much like the earlier match, they basically spent the majority of this match building to the hot tag, and I mean they were really milking it with several failed tag attempts. Once Knight actually got in there, the crowd exploded. The finishing sequence was basically a mistake by Jimmy which led to a babyface double team. First Knight hit the superplex and then Cena delivered a five knuckle shuffle and Knight finally put Jimmy away with a BFT to win the match for his team. Judgment Day was backstage and Priest, who was still noticeably hurt, said he isn't waiting anymore and is going to be leaving tonight as a champion, but Finn and Rhea both talked him out of cashing in, saying it wasn't the right time. Declan McMahon, the 19-year-old son of Shane, is shown at ringside with, I guess, some of his college football teammates. I will be amazed if this kid isn't inserted into WWE storylines by this time next year. Closing out the show was the last man standing match with Seth Rollins defending the WWE world title against Shinsuke Nakamura. Nakamura almost immediately starts targeting Seth's injured back. He removes the mat outside to expose the concrete floor, but Seth avoids being dumped on it for the time being. Back in the ring, Nakamura places a trash can over Seth's head and beats him with a kendo stick. He then pulls out a pair of nunchucks and places them across Seth's mouth and starts pulling back. Nakamura sets up a table in the corner and tries a Gonshasa, but Seth moves, so Nakamura goes knee first into the table. On the floor, Seth brings out a ladder and runs it like a battering ram into Nakamura's chest. They fight into the crowd and go way up into the stands, only for Nakamura to kick Seth off. He falls backwards off the steps into a riser or platform or something, doing further damage to his back. Seth fights back and tries a pedigree on the exposed floor at ringside, but Nakamura counters with a back body drop onto the concrete. Nakamura then sets Seth up on a table at ringside and flies off the middle rope with a double knee drop, which almost cleared the table. Seth then sets Nakamura on the announce table and attempts to climb the ladder beside the table, but Nakamura climbs up the other side and sprays Seth with the mist. He then pushes Seth off the ladder and he crashes through the announce table. Back in the ring, Nakamura plants Seth with a backbreaker into a chair and then runs him into the corner table with a Kinshasa. Seth rolls to the floor to land on his feet and break the count. 
They fight through the crowd again and find another table in the crowd, which Seth pedigrees Nakamura through. He then climbs on top one of the barricades and hits a stomp, and then brings Nakamura up there and delivers a falcon arrow off the elevated platform through a table below, which finally puts Nakamura away and Rollins retains as I think we all expected. So that was the week in pro wrestling. I will be back next week and it'll probably be another Monday show as I have the day off. I will talk about Roman Reigns returning, the huge NXT versus AEW night this coming Tuesday, and also preview Impact Bound for Glory. Until then, I leave you with an ABC ya.